So during this, uh, this time together um, on our retreats, we've had the opportunity to really um, contemplate one of the core teachings uh, that the Buddha gave at the very heart of his uh, transmission was the teaching on the, the four ennobling truths, the experience and the reality of our human condition of inevitably being faced with, uh, with the, the suffering of, or, and stress and discontent and struggle. So um, this in many ways is uh, some, an experience that we spend a lot of time and energy trying to get away from and trying to alleviate in all manner of ways, very creative, ingenious ways that we've uh, discovered and, as human beings. But nevertheless, we can never quite escape the shadow of suffering and uh, difficulty. So this, uh, the Buddha himself uh, also uh, was challenged by. The other evening, Kirisaro uh, was talking about how the Buddha first began to become awakened. His awakening uh, was uh, quickened through the meeting of the heavenly messengers, uh, the reality of meeting someone that was aged, uh, someone that was very, very sick and ill, and then a corpse, seeing a corpse. Uh, not the usual things that we, we like to be confronted with. And through that experience, uh, feeling that the, the vanity of youth and the, the illusion of uh, our own permanence, his own permanence, it was eroded. And that spurred his journey to actually start to inquire, is there anything in this realm of impermanence and change that is untouched by impermanence, that is, that is changeless, that transcends death? So that was his great quest. And then we found him uh, leaving his comfort zone, leaving what was familiar you know, in a little kind of smaller archetypal way, uh, that uh, we, we, his uh, his journey is a, an archetype for ourselves, leaving our comfort zone and coming on retreat, and being challenged, moving outside of our habitual uh, zones. So this um, this began to um, began the great quest. And that quest involved uh, leaving his home, leaving what was familiar, and to undertake a journey. It's a sort of classical archetypal uh, metaphor, really, to leave the familiar and to undertake a journey to find a deeper treasure, to find something that's lasting, to find some truth, something of great worth. And then we found that uh, the, we heard the other night that the Buddha, after leaving, leaving the palace, leaving his uh, loved ones, his family, those he grew up with, uh, he began to practice with the great yogis of the time, the great practitioners of the time. And then 
very quickly learnt everything they had to teach him, great states of very subtle absorptions uh, where he uh, could completely leave the experience of his embodiment, subtle planes of consciousness, of, uh, of no perception, no feeling, no sense of embodiment. But he began to, to notice that even though these were very peaceful and would probably entail a great sense of willpower, to maintain these states, he would inevitably come down. He would inevitably come back to the limitations of form. And so he was still faced, and perhaps in our own small way, even though we might have had moments of some peacefulness and calm, and that's very good and very skillful and very important to develop that. It's very foundational in our meditation practice. We also notice... We can't keep controlling the mind. We come down and we get, we get, we again and again, we get pulled back into the discomfort of the body or the limitations of our, of our wandering, distracted mind or uncomfortable feelings. So often in meditation, we we really want to escape that, but we we can't really. So the same way that the Buddha realized that although he'd learned these great subtle uh, absorptions, he still hadn't really understood or got to the place where he had some insight into that which transcends death and change, which was his great quest. So then at that point, he decided to try, as we heard, to, uh, to overcome the limitations of the body through huge acts of will. If he could crush the needs of the body, not eat, not even breathe, then maybe that would be the answer, not feel anything. Yeah. And, and I think that too, sometimes we approach meditation like that. You know, I don't really want to feel... <laughs> We can actually remove ourselves from contact, from hearing, from sensory impingement. If we if we don't have to feel our humanity, if we if we could sort of transport ourselves to some spiritual place, whatever that is, that we have some image about or ideal about. If we never had to feel uncomfortable or unsure or lacking in confidence or, again, you know, we could be really certain, really in control. But, of course, we can't. And the same with the Buddha, that he, he, he couldn't. In fact, the, 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 his desire to and his, his attempt to really crush his experience of his human embodiment led him to the edge of death. That's where that was going. There's no, no life force left. Annihilation. So that was that's one road to go down, just to try and obliterate everything. But um, at that point, then uh, he uh, he realised this, as uh, as is recorded in the suttas, the phrase came to his mind after he could touch his tummy and reach his backbone, after he went to, to urinate and would fall over. 
you know, he was so weak, and then he, the thought arose, may, might there be another way? <laughs> There's got to be some other way of doing this. <laughs> this isn't working. Yeah. So that was, in a way, beginning to change, to shift. And what it meant was that he began to shift out of all the strategies that he had known, all the strategies that were available at the times that he was in. He was effectively on his own from that point because he was deserted by his fellow yogis because he took nourishment um, from, a, from a beautiful woman, compassionate woman that offered him food in a certain way representing perhaps his beginning to re-enter and embrace the world of form rather than trying to crush it and move away from it. And, uh, you know, they, his fellow seekers, as we heard, thought, oh, well, Gautama has gone slack, you know. He's, he's losing his edge. <laughs> so they, they were, you know, put, they were, they were uh, dis- disillusioned with him and they went off and he was, he was completely alone at that point. You know, had to rely on some other place from within himself. And so it's said then that he, he went to Buddhgaya, Gaya, and sat under the Bodhi tree after having exhausted every possible avenue and strategy for his awakening, for his enlightenment, for his deeper understanding, and just fueled by what was a memory that he had of when he was a child, which is a lovely sense of the... the the deeper wisdom offering to him this very pure and innocent memory of being a child and just sitting very simply and quietly and being with his breath and feeling the pleasure of that and realizing, yes, this was a, in a way the path was beginning to open to him in a way that was very simple and very natural. So he sat under the tree, the, the, the Bodhi tree or the Pipal tree, and made a, an aditana, a determination uh, to, to wait and to sit until he had actually really realized awakening, come to understand some deeper truth, some unchangeable, unshifting reality, something that would transcend this mortal realm that was so beset by suffering and distress and impermanence. And so it's said that uh, during this, uh, his uh, sitting under the tree of awakening, during the night of his awakening, it's said that the first thing that appeared was all the, the huge array of the forces, forces of what's called Mara, the mind and all its temptations and delusions and longings and, and things that intimidated and frightened, images that seduced all came, came to visit, trying to make him waver and quake and to give up, which is a, which is a, a very um, beautiful archetype for what happens when we, we, ta- we start the path of awakening. It's everything that we would not want to meet, we're going to have to meet. <laughs> every fear, every, uh, everything that's been in the shadows, that hasn't been illuminated, will come to visit. So the very nature of awakening is, is not to transport us prematurely out of 
our humanity, but to reveal the fullness of our humanity, including all the shadows, including all the things that that make us feel frightened or overwhelm us or seduce us or worry us or bring up longing or bring up loneliness or bring up anxiety or bring up a lot of doubt. So during the night, he was, he was beset by this huge array of forces. As Mara, the, the archetypal tempter in Buddhist, uh, in the Buddhist um, cosmology, came to undermine him, distract. But the Buddha was, the Buddha to be was pretty determined, so he sat and instead of sort of getting out his AK-47 and just shooting dead Mara or, you know, going into battle, he just sat and simply said, I know you. I know you. That's all. I know you. I know. This is doubt. This is fear. This is aversion. This is longing. You know, and that's that, that illumination with the knowing of the mind. And eventually, so that Mara, disappointed, sort of slunk away. <laughs> you know, the fuel was taken out. It's, a, it's, a, it's the reactivity of the mind that refuels the shadows that come to overwhelm us and undermine our sense of confidence. It's when we, we're averse and we try and push away what we don't want to be with or we get seduced and, and overwhelmed or caught that we, we, we don't find any freedom. So this simple, I know you, no doubt, I know fear, I know... Uh, it doesn't mean to say it's, one's not still going to feel the fear or feel a sense of being shaken by life. But one, the thing that what knows these different experiences, what can know fear and doubt and aversion and longing and desire isn't fear, doubt, longing, aversion and desire. And knowing is, is very stable. So the Buddha sat and then during, it said during the night of his awakening, three different knowledges arose. He had the knowledge of the insight into seeing all of his past lives. So that he sat there and he could see where and when he was born according to what conditions, what he ate, what situation he was in. He was able to track all the different, uh, different forms and shapes according to different conditions and karma that brought him to, to appear in such and such a situation, in such and such a place. And in the same way, we might not have that kind of vision to see that deeply, but certainly we sit here and we see all the stories of our lives, which is a bit like visiting our past lives. <laughs> this story, that story, that drama, this situation when we were here, when we were there. Review, you could review. But he saw, he saw much more deeply than we tend. We tend to get very caught in our stories and obsessed and, and seduced by them. He saw 
very deeply the causality that brought about different situations for himself. And then in the second knowledge of the night, he could see that for all other beings, what brings beings to appear in the shape and the form and the way that they do. And then the third knowledge of the night was was being able to understand this very, the way the mind, as it's said by one great um, Tibetan teacher, Dilgo Kinsei, say the, the mind or the heart, the jitta, not knowing its primordial true nature, there's unshakable awareness, there's a tendency to feel and move towards some sense of something that needs to be fulfilled or some sense of uh, movement, fundamental movement to find a shape and a form. So the, the Buddha saw this tendency, what's called sankara, this movement to find a pattern and a shape, a sense of self that stands out and exists independent. The sense of me that's shaped and formed by by feelings and perceptions and memories, longing, intentionality, desire. And in that seeing of that, there was the the ending of it. He he completely uh, renounced and let go and dissolved and finished the need to appear in a, in a, in, as, a, as a sense of a separate self. He recognized his underlying unshakable, it's called the, the true nature or the nature of the undying, which he called Nibbana, the peaceful, the unshakable, the unchanging, that which wasn't dependent on time. So in this tasting of Nibbana is a very subtle insight that came about through his relinquishment of identification with all the different stories or the need to, to take birth in some particular form or shape. But in that, in that realization, it was a very profound, very profound realization of great taste of peace, a great sense of being finished, of having no more births, as he said. The house, the house builder, the, the one that builds constantly, creating and taking shape and form, building the sense of self through all the stories and through all the identities had been completely finished for him. There was nothing left, no fuel left to be born into the sense of time or someone going somewhere, some, some other experience yet to have. It was all finished. And in that finishing, there was a profound peace and release. What is often called enlightenment or awakening. At that point, it said, a, a dawn star arose as if to confirm and his awakening and then he touched because he didn't know who could really uh, witness to his awakening. And then he touched Mother Earth, who had witnessed all his many, many lives, all the many different places he's lived and shapes and forms. <coughs> and Mother Earth herself confirmed his awakening. 
There's this beautiful sense of this kind of radical realization. No need to move anymore, no need to become, no need, nothing to prove, nothing to get. Just a profound release. But it's very subtle, so after his awakening, he just thought, oh, it's impossible to teach. You know, he said that he, he really, uh, he felt too subtle to try and communicate what he had understood. And human beings were, you know, they were too deluded, too caught up in all their stuff. So it said that he was reluctant and, and was thinking of abandoning the whole idea of trying to say anything about what he had understood. And apparently at that time, all the gods and goddesses were watching from their subtle realms, the heavens. And they started to get quite agitated because there's this great enlightenment that's happened, but then the Buddha was about to decide to just go off to the Himalayas or something and not say a word. And they knew if that happened, there would be a huge loss to humanity. So they, so uh, one of the great gods from the Brahma realm came down, Brahma Sahampati, great deva, great angelic being, descended in front of the Buddha. This is the story. <laughs> yeah, sometimes they say uh, Brahma Sahamsi is a metaphor for great compassion or for the need from the awakening to Brahma Sahamsi came from the Brahma realm, which is to do with the world of the subtle realm of creation and forms, subtle forms. It represents the need to bring insight into words, into form, to complete the journey into expression. So Brahma Sahamati appeared before the Buddha and said, for those with a little dust, please go forth and communicate this thing that you can't communicate. <coughs> you know, that's the paradox. It's because the insight, the understanding transcended words. Yeah. No words. It's a lovely phrase in the Lotus Sutra says the The Dharma cannot be uh, captured. Words fall short from the Dharma. Can't capture it, really. So how do you communicate something that can't be communicated? And in a way, that's a challenge for all of us (laughs) on some level as, as we awaken to try and bring into our expression, not just communication, but to bring it into the world of form, as was being discussed in the questions there's some thing that's, that, that compels almost, that it's not enough just to see, but there is some way that there needs to be an expression, maybe out of compassion, maybe just for the sake of truth, beauty, freedom. So this was the Buddha's task, and it's not that he had a handbook, a manual that came down with Brahma Sahampati about how to do that, So as we know, it was very reluctant, it was difficult. So it's said that after spending about six or eight weeks in bliss and one whole week just gazing at the Bodhi tree and devotion that had sheltered him and then contemplating the the subtleties of the, the links of dependent origination, how one thing, one cause, how ignorance brings into being 
sense of self, how the sense of self is then prone to decay and death. You saw the different karmic links, this huge knowledge of the Buddha. So how to, where, where to start, where, what to communicate. Then it said at one point someone came by, the first person, one of the first people to see the Buddha after his awakening. He was very radiant, very luminous, very peaceful. Came up and said, wow, you look pretty amazing. <laughs> you look pretty peaceful. What are you about? And the Buddha says something like, well, I'm the all-world transcender. I'm the fully enlightened one. I have no teacher. There is no one that knows more than me. Something like that. And the guy went, well, that's nice for you, you know. And then walked walked off shaking his head. He couldn't get the transmission. Buddha was making a statement of truth. This is not the, the, the statement of ego, but the statement of what we truly are. Already awakened, the world transcendent one. But it it didn't really work. The person couldn't do much with that. So then it said that the Buddha walked from Budgaya to Varanasi, maybe, you know, long walk, I imagine, and overnight train journey. And during that time began to perhaps formulate how he would communicate what was hard to communicate. And during that journey, when he arrived at uh, Varanasi Saranath, um, it said that his former fellow yogis saw him, his five friends, and they said, oh, here comes the slacker Gautama. Let's not, let's not make a seat for him. Let's not pay respects. He, you know, he, he lost the way when he ate that milk rice. That beautiful woman that came, that, <laughs> he, he really slipped off the path there with that one. So, but when, they, when he came near, he said he was so radiant and so peaceful that they couldn't but help fill this devotion and make a seat and sit. And then it's uh, at this point that the Buddha came to give what became known as the, his core teaching which is on the Four Noble Truths. And he began by stating there is this experience, this First Noble Truth. He didn't come from the position of there is enlightenment. You're already enlightened. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to get. You're already awake. It's all an illusion. (laughs) All the things that you think you are, you're not. (laughs) He didn't really come from that position. He came from there is this experience of dukkha. There is this experience of dukkha. And it needs to be understood. It needs to be contemplated. It needs to be turned to. It needs to be reflected upon. There is this experience of that which is difficult to be with, that which is difficult to bear. This is part of our human inheritance. It's a very human and tangible message. We don't have to go to some esoteric realm to understand this first noble truth. Today, every one of us would have experienced some form of this dukkha. It's with us all the time to some degree or another. 
there is this experience of that which is unsatisfactory. There is this experience of a lack of deep ease, dis-ease. We're never quite at ease. We have a loss of peace. We feel agitated. We feel discontent. Or we feel, as is laid out in the teaching, we feel the suffering of, as the Buddha said, birth is suffering. Coming into form is coupled with suffering. Aging is suffering. Death is suffering. Old age sickness is suffering. Pain, grief, lamentation and despair is suffering. Being with the unloved is suffering. Being parted from the loved is suffering. Getting what we don't want is suffering. Not getting what we want is suffering. (laughs) These are everyday kinds of experiences. In brief, the five focuses of the grasping mind is suffering. When we move out to try and find our identity within that which is changing, these five focuses of the grasping mind, form, feeling, perception, memory, moments of sensory consciousness, patternings of the mind, deep conditionings that arise when we keep getting propelled and finding ourselves locked in those structures, dependent on those five it's called the khandas or skandhas, There's, it's associated with this feeling of constriction, limitation. And usually in, in relationship to this experience, we spend a lot of time reacting. You know, we, we spend, you know, as a, a culture, we spend billions of dollars to try and avoid this fundamental truth, to alleviate this, this uh, dukkha billion dollar industries to keep us distracted. (laughs) We move our attention around from one thing to another or or we project it out and blame, you know, it's because of someone else that I'm experiencing this or or we project it onto the self, it's because I'm a bad person that I'm experiencing this, something wrong with me. Or we we, uh, we repress, we try and repress this experience of unsatisfactoriness. Avoid it. But the, the Buddha said, actually, this is an ennobling truth because the encouragement is to contemplate it. When we have enough samadhi and strength of mind, we don't just stay you know, trying to stay calm and avoid the world, but we begin to contemplate the experience of disturbance. What is this and where does it arise from? The Buddha said there are some sufferings that we can't avoid. It's called dukkha dukkha. There's dukkha dukkha, which is things like the natural pains of aging, for example, or even the Buddha would sometimes say, oh, to his attendant, Sariputra, I can't teach the Dharma tonight because I've got a backache. You know, you do it, I'll go lay down. Or it's said that when his two great disciples died before him, Sariputra and Moggallana, he said it was like two great trees had fallen. So, you, you know, he felt it. He wasn't, he wasn't immune from feeling. He felt the loss. That's a very powerful image. If you've ever had a, a beloved tree that falls, you know, it's a, it's, it's a powerful experience to have that sense of loss. So it wasn't that there's not 
some pain and suffering and loss that's going to be inevitable. And when the Buddha talks about the ending of suffering, he's talking about the suffering that's generated from a particular cause, which is the fundamental avijja, which means not seeing clearly the fundamental ignorance of the mind. So dukkha is something that actually we generate. It's not being done to us. We can experience pain from others for sure. That's for sure. Of course we can. And, you know, sometimes in very extreme ways, but it's what we always have the choice, what we then do with that. And the more mindful we are, the more present, the more choice. When we're not mindful, we just suffer or repress or project or blame or think it's something out there all the time. So, you know, we can, you know, we have the capacity as human beings to really, this is a journey that we undertake. You know, either we consciously undertake it and work consciously with suffering or we just unconsciously suffer. That's our choice. If we consciously engage it, then there's a a possibility of great transformation. You know, I think of people like, for example, our great leader in uh, South Africa, Mr. Mandela, uh, underwent huge trail, trials and tribulations and uh, imprisonment uh, unfairly, extremely unfairly. And yet each step of the way made these very courageous decisions to meet, the, to, meet you know, to defend himself as a lawyer in an in a, in a unjust trial and to meet being in prison and to turn the guards around by learning their language and getting to understand their psychology and beginning to work with them to the point that they couldn't help themselves but really respect him and then love him. And then eventually using that 27, 30 years or whatever of great tribulation to turn a whole country around at the point where it could have descended into chaos in 94, the political transitions. And this is one person. This is one person that chose to make a journey through enormous suffering that wasn't suffering that was his fault at all. It was actually suffering that was put upon him through the extraordinary depth of racism that was legislated in South Africa for many years. And uh, it was appalling depth of suffering that that entailed and here was someone in the midst of that that was able to work really consciously you know, to the point where he could actually as a leader of a country love everyone and it wasn't that he didn't feel if you read you know which I recommend if you read his book how he made that journey long walk to freedom if you read some of his teachings and life story it wasn't that he didn't feel fear. He did. And he would say, you know, he would feel, he said, the courage isn't the absence of fear. So this first ennobling truth, it takes a lot of courage. You know, we're building courage. We're, building, we're not trying to avoid everything we want to avoid. It will always come to meet us somewhere. So rather to, to, to use our capacity for for generating 
strength through this practice of steadiness and presence, mindfulness. And so we can begin to apprehend that which generates. First of all, we can notice their suffering, this discontent, and then we can begin to inquire, this work of inquiry and vipassana is to really look into the moment. What is generating if there's suffering here? Usually, as Ajahn Chah would say, in the second noble truth, put it very simply, he said, usually if, you, if there's suffering that's connected with this fundamental avijja of the mind, it's connected with wanting and not wanting. We want something that's not here and we don't want what's here. And our mind's doing that all the time. And therefore it's in a state of distress and agitation. We want to be peaceful, we don't want the mood that we're experiencing. We want to be on retreat, and then when we're on retreat, we want to be home again. (laughs) We want to be alone, and then when we're alone, we want to be with company. We want to go to the beach, and then when we're at the beach, we want to go to the mountains. So until we understand these forces, this force of what's called tanha, or craving, or thirst, it's always operating within the mind, and begin to challenge it and begin to uh, learn to not be driven by that, then we'll always be destined to experience this agitation and discontent. So in the second, where the first noble truth is to, to not to fear, to contemplate, to turn, to actually realize when suffering arises or discontent or stress, it's an opportunity for us to inquire more deeply. When that appears, then... In the second noble truth, the encouragement is to, to simply let, let go. This is what we've been looking at today. Can we just let things be is another way of saying it. Do we have to keep agitating and keep trying to move the, the furniture around of our lives to get it all right so we can feel content? Yeah. It's a kind of endless occupation, if you've noticed. Yeah. <coughs> so in moments... Moments like in this kind of a retreat, as Kidisara was saying last night, when we have the, the limitation of being with a sitting, being with a retreat, we have the chance to see desire can arise, the desire for some kind of sensory experience or the second form of desire, which is called bhavatana, which means always wanting to become something else or something more than what we, f- we feel we are which drives us on and on. And now we, not only have we got to become something else in the world, now we've got to become enlightened, you know, which is a big task <laughs> for the self. You know. So it's, it's, uh, it's no wonder one feels exhausted sometimes because you know, there's no end to it until we actually illuminate that energy and realize we don't have to keep buying into it. Or the opposite, when we've had enough becoming something or getting somewhere else all the time, then we just want to not exist, not to feel, not to be in contact. It's called vipuva tanha, to to sort of disappear. So these are very powerful forces that operate within the mind, connected with this uh, endless agitation so in the, the, the insight, the vipassana, with some steadiness, we can start to contemplate. 
And through this deepening, as we let go, let be, then we start to recognize there's a whole other dimension here. There's the, the disenchantment, as uh, Kitty Sarah was pointing to last night. It's a, a very, sometimes very necessary precursor to noticing this other dimension. When, we, when we've had enough, enough experience, been enough places, done enough, you know, we're bored enough with our stories. <laughs> yeah, when we've had enough conflicts and been through uh, all the different kinds of pathways of the mind enough, something's just like weary. In, in, uh, in Buddhism, they have a word called, called nibbida, which means a sort of weariness. Disenchantment in the now, in our modern culture, we think when that appears, we think something's wrong. You know, like something wrong with you because you feel that. You have to go shopping or something. <laughs> yeah. But actually, it's, 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 it's an important place to get to. It's not, it's an important, if we can understand, yes, it can be near a sort of despair and depression, but you know, which can be quite more complex and difficult to work with. But, in, but sometimes we mistake what is actually an, a natural sense of disenchantment as, as, you know, we mistake it as something wrong with us rather than actually a, a maturing. Yeah. Beginning to lead us into this, just letting things be. And then through that practice, being able to recognize that in that um, as we just let life be, let things be, let the mind, let everything as it is, not having to make it perfect, not having to get it right, then we start to recognize that there's an underlying peacefulness, spaciousness, presence. Ajahn Mahabhura said, when dukkha stops... When this agitation, the agitation of desire, aversion, getting somewhere, changing the world to make it perfect, when it all stops, when we let go, then nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. This is the purity of the mind. If you want, you can call it nibbana. But that's only a word. <laughs> and the, the important thing is that uh, we, we directly can begin to taste what it's like to let things be, to let things go, and to recognize here and now, in any moment, there's, in that process, there's a taste of peace, taste of freedom. So in this practice of the third noble truth, the encouragement is to really to make that journey of just letting, of noticing when there's agitation, there's suffering, to be able to track back what is it in this moment, wanting, not wanting, releasing from that, letting things be, accepting, opening, and allowing the mind to recognize its own fundamental peace, its own fundamental awareness 
the heart. So in uh, this uh, practice, this, uh, this fourth noble truth is the practice that helps to bring about the transformation, of suffering to peace. Any moment, every opportunity, we have the possibility to practice. This fourth noble truth of the Eightfold Path in essence, is a path of mindfulness, a path of seeing clearly, the path of cultivating this mindfulness in every aspect of our life, how we live in our relationships, in our speech, cultivating this way of, uh, of uh, meditation, This is what the Buddha recommended as we apply the moments of path activity in and of itself. It begins to break up that which obstructs our clear seeing. So this path, the Buddha said, after his discovery of this peaceful taste of freedom, peaceful taste of nibbana, he pointed to this path. He said, it's, it's just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient road traversed by people of former times. With beautiful pools, groves, and gardens, so have I seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, I have established this way for the welfare of all. So this teaching that the Buddha gave for the welfare of all, he took the effort to do it, even though it was, you know, he was right, it was a lot of trouble. (laughs) He spent over 40 years teaching, very difficult, trying to communicate what wasn't, it's hard to communicate. But in doing so, he showed not only the path of the way for us to free ourselves personally, but also showed the way of, of, of service of compassion within the world. One of the things the Buddha said after his awakening, when he noticed, he thought about it, that those, he said, that those that live without anything to serve live unhappily. What can I serve? What can I offer to? Because there's, there's no one, he was, he was right, there was no one more realized than him. You know, all the beings really were serving him. He was the master. And he thought about it, but I, but I need to serve something, to live happily, to feel connected, to feel my place in this world. So it wasn't that the Buddha in his awakening just went off and removed himself and became some sort of dead person somehow. He was very dynamic, very alive 
really thought about how to communicate, how to bring the teachings into the society, how to develop an order, how to help guide kings, how to support farmers, how to support people that had lost loved ones, how to encourage the Dharma in the world. So when he contemplated what could he serve, he, he thought, I can serve this law, this Dharma. This is what I can serve. And in this way, find a way of fulfillment. So this is also is our, our task, to practice and then to find our expression and our way and our service. Each one may find a unique way. But in this way of expressing the Dharma and living it, deepening into it, we will find, we will find our contentment, our peace, our place our freedom and our true expression, our true authenticity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.